Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people currently working in international schools, and we talk about life in their current country, and then we dive into some specific topics. The podcast is sponsored by AppsEvent. We're a Google for Education partner and made up of former educators, all experts in helping schools integrate Google into their schools and classrooms. All training is customized for every school to make sure it has lasting impact. We're also experts on online virtual Google training, and we can deliver all our certification boot camps and training completely online to schools. We have teams in Europe and the Middle East, Asia and the US, and we can help you wherever you are. Check it out over at appsevents.com. We're also delighted to say we're now an ISTE partner and we're delivering the ISTE Certified Educator worldwide with our subsidiary AE Learning. ISTE certification is a pedagogy-focused, vendor-neutral, professional certification aimed at educators wishing to transform their edtech practice. We run two-day certification boot camps which are amazing fun, great networking and will give you a huge boost both to your career and for your school. Get all the info at aelearninglab.com. Finally, the podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People ask us what Chromebooks and Windows laptops we recommend for schools, and after literally trying them all, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more information, please just leave your email at gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get straight back to you. We go to Acer HQ in Taiwan every year to be part of product discussions, and they are genuinely the best thought out, cost-effective, and durable devices out there. And now, on to the interview. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Ken Shelton, someone I've known for a long time. Ken is an educator from Los Angeles. Uh, he's He's a Google expert, which is how we started working together and became friends. He's also... Uh, an expert in diversity, and uh, he can explain more about you know cross-cultural uh, issues for schools and teachers. So, Ken, huge welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It's good, to, good to uh, good to be on here with you, my friend. Good to be on yeah, here yeah. with. You. I was, you know, Ken. I was just looking at my email. Did you remember where, where, and when we first met? You know, I don't. It's been it was, so long. I mean, it's it uh, you and I have been. Ago. It was it was ten years ago. And it was full queue. In Mountain, what's it called? Mountain. Well, that's Street. right, in Napa. Canyon, at, uh, American, yeah, American Canyon. Canyon. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and then I was I was doing a bit of work for Q at the time. I ran their first European event, which was a Google workshop for educators, and you were going to present. And then, because at the time you were in school, you you couldn't couldn't get away, I think. So someone else did it. But but we met up at we met up at Four Q, and then uh, ended up working together on quite a few things. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, 10, ten, years. ten years. Ten, ten years. Ten years to the day, man. Year. <laughs> time flies. Time flies. Getting older. Um, but Ken, look, really, like, I'd love to talk a bit about diversity. Obviously, it's something that's in the news a lot now. It's it's not a new issue, but it's it's new, maybe to a lot of people. But before that, I want to get into your background a bit. So you're from LA, and you kind of live, still live in LA. What? Well, how did it all start? I know. I know you went to college, and I believe you were, you were a football player for UCLA. Is that right? Yes, go Bruins. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up here in Los Angeles, and um, ultimately, you know, I've been here my whole life. Um, I have had the opportunity and privilege to go to a lot of places around the world. I, I 
And I think when I last counted, I've been to more than 50 countries, which is definitely a privilege, especially considering how much I love to travel. And quite frankly, that those travels have really helped shape my worldview on things that help hyper, absolutely hypersensitize and hyper localize my view on things, not just here in Los Angeles, but quite frankly, you've been shaped the work that I do. But yeah, so I grew up here in Los Angeles, went to UCLA, go Bruins. I was fortunate enough to play sports in college. I played football and ran track. And uh, and then, you know, growing up here in Los Angeles, uh, you know, aside from my aspirations to play professional football, which sadly I didn't make it, um, but most of us don't. Yeah. I did acting and modeling for a number of years. I was in uh, two different theater groups for about four years total time. And I come from a family of educators. So, you know, for me, education has always been a very important part of my family. Um, one of the things that, you know, you mentioned the diversity thing and uh, I will share that I have done uh, my absolute best for my entire life to dispel, dismantle, and debunk as many stereotypes that generally get applied to me as possible. And so one of the common stereotypes that is applied to uh, especially a black male here in the United States are that, for example, that all we're good at are um, sports uh, or music. Uh, now, sports was a vehicle for me to, uh, you know, get to college. Um, I in, I had an opportunity to go to several other universities as well, uh, but UCLA was was pretty much my first choice. But, you know, it it uh, again with education though. I I come from a family of educators, and so again, one of the stereotypes is the uh, enduring data around many. Many folks that are of a marginalized cultural identity are the first in their family to go to college. I am not the first. I'm not the second or the third. Um, I know for sure I'm at least a fourth and maybe even the fifth generation of my family to go to college, which says a lot if you consider that you go back, you know, three generations and then of my family and then you get into um, members of my family or my ancestors that were enslaved at one point. So, um, you know, the fact that we have a long lineage of educational access is, isn't a significant accomplishment in and of itself. So ultimately because of being, uh, you know, coming from a family of educators, I, I shifted into education. My father was a chief business officer for several uh, county offices of education here in California. So to put that in perspective for your international audience, it would be the equivalent of a, you have your Ministry of Education, which handles like the whole country, and then you have your provincial yeah. Ministry of Education. So my dad was the chief business officer for the equivalent of a provincial Ministry of Education. Right. I mean, California and, uh, is like a country in itself, isn't it? California is anywhere else in the world, California will be a country. I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah, well. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So then, you know, I... I uh, you know, I got into education, I got my certifications, I got, um, I have a master's degree. And, you know, ultimately, in the co context of, I would say I had an epiphany with my students probably around 1998, 98, 99, right in there where, uh, and I'll never forget this. So that year, um, that was one of the principles I worked with that I really, really enjoyed. He was such a good guy. And he really, he and I hit it off right from the beginning because he played college football at the University of Michigan. And so ultimately, the, the the nexus of that year was I wanted to teach social studies, which is history. Uh, and I said, I don't want to use the textbook at all. I have enough computers in the classroom so that half the students can be on a computer at one time and the other half won't. And I wanted to basically 
I didn't have the terminology then that I do now, but essentially decolonize the curriculum and provide the students with a learning experience and learning access, which is part of uh, an equity lens and digital equity. I want to provide them with access to narratives, uh, research, and information that was either um, intentionally omitted from the textbook or did not go deeply uh, as far as the information in the textbook. And so that, that was my epiphany as, as to how important and how necessary the use of technology is in education. So, And then, of course, as you shared early on, later on, I, I was fortunate enough to become what is now called a Google Certified Innovator, an Apple Distinguished Educator, and many, many other things I do in the tech world. But but my primary lens is, is in the world of um, anti-bias, diversity, anti-racist, and decolonizing the curriculum. Great. So you, you work, and how long did you work as a teacher? Is it like 10 years or something you worked for, for in the school? Oh, actually, longer. If you count, so if you count even the times that I subbed, I worked in a classroom for over 20 years. Okay, wow. That's a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, LA, you know, talking about diversity, I think LA, probably California in general, it's one of the most diverse places that I've been. I think Los Angeles especially because not obviously there's there's different um, ethnic groups in America, but everyone from every country in the world wants to go to LA, you know? So it's kind of, you yeah, literally, yeah. Meet, you literally it's, it's, I mean, there's no novelty value in Los Angeles. As an English person in America, you might get a bit of novelty value somewhere. Like in LA, no one would even notice that, you know, because people are from everywhere there, you know? It's like every accent, every every race and culture. You do. And and honestly, that was uh, that was one of the beauties of, of the schools that I worked in is, you know, I, I remember, one of the classes back, I want to say this was 2001 or 2002 that I had, I, I had requested to be able to teach the uh, honors classes as well as the ESL classes, which, you know, I, for your audience, ESL stands for English as a Second Language, which means you have students that English is not the primary language spoken in a home. And uh, I love that class big time. There were probably, if I remember correctly, there were more than a dozen different languages and yeah. cultural identities in one class, which was so amazing. It's so amazing. So, that, that to me is what every learning environment should look like is you really, it's an, a, it's a, it's an environment where every student's cultural identity is not only affirmed, but you create mechanisms for them to share elements of their cultural identity as a part of and to advance group learning. I mean, I learned a whole lot from my students. I got sure. invited to homes. Uh, I want to say that year I went to for sure at least three or four quinceanera parties, uh, for sure three or four bar or bat mitzvahs. I got invited. I went, um, and I, I don't remember the official name, but I remember going and uh, having dinner uh, with one of uh, the my students and a family at the end of uh, Ramadan. Yeah. Um, and I know there's a there's an official name for for that the end of, of the uh, the big fast. Uh, yeah. But even I mean, I don't remember the name now. But um, you know, my main point is think about how fruitful that was for me being one as a teacher invited into their homes or into uh, the events that they're doing, and then think about the significance of those events uh, as far as those families go that they wanted to include me in that. Yeah. And yeah. That's deal you know i mean that 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 beats any anything that happens that is based on the curriculum or or quite frankly the classroom sure and then following on from from teaching like you said you, you've worked uh, as a trainer you've done equity stuff you've done google stuff and you've basically kind of worked all around the world 
Yes. I, so I, I, when I left the classroom, I, I've had the fortunate opportunity to do a lot of talks, a lot of trainings, and a lot of support for international schools in quite a few countries. I've had the privilege of doing some of that work with you. I was just uh, thinking, yeah, we've, we've worked together in Frankfurt, in Manila, in Philippines, in Bangkok, and the least of some other places as well. But yeah, definitely, at least, uh, at least twice oh, no, in yeah, because I you took me by your uh, um, where you grew up. We were up in Halifax. Yeah, we, you stayed you stayed in my parents' house. Yeah, and Halifax, right. of course. Halifax, yeah. yeah, North Halifax summit in Yorkshire, yeah, Yorkshire. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was but fun. Yeah. And you took me around. Uh, didn't you take me to the area where the the Bronte sisters? Yeah, were exactly. From? That's how where I'm from is the, the Bronte village. Yes, okay. exactly. Right. That's yeah. where they, yeah, you, I know you got a, got a few photos. It's it's a uh, it's one of the most famous tourist spots in the UK. Actually, it's. Wow. And a lot of a lot of uh, Japanese visitors. The signs in the village are in Japanese as well as English. So Bronte's are super popular in Japan. Wow, and a lot of Americans as well. So, yeah, yeah you cool. and I got a lot of adventures together. I know we were supposed to work together in Africa, but I couldn't. Uh, I, I couldn't make it yeah, happen. Senegal, we did, that was amazing. Yeah. The Senegal event was uh, was really that was an amazing experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you've and, and you've worked all around the world now. Kind of this brings us on to work you're doing a lot of now around you know, diversity, equity, inclusion and stuff like, I mean, I guess what is the start, starting point is like, I guess it's a big question, but kind of what is the issue that, that you're helping to tackle? Like, is, is it, is it, does it boil down to a few different things or how, how would you kind of describe what the issue is that you're helping uh, schools right. with? I mean, ultimately it's, it's, there's two major areas with that. One is that work is aligned with an, a deeper understanding of humanity and then two, that work is aligned with, you know, some of what you and I have just shared that your audience, the experiences you and I have shared, the experiences you've had individually, experiences I've had individually, and that is, you know, making effective, meaningful, and fruitful uh, cross-cultural connections. I mean, you yeah. think about the places you've been, the places I've been, the places you and I've been together, and, you know, did we feel out of place? Were we able to adapt to that environment? Were we able to not only adapt to that environment, but contribute to those environments? And so there's those are the two major areas because, you know, if you think in terms of where we are as a global society, you know, you have to be able to effectively make cross-cultural connections. Sure. No matter what, it's either in business because of having a broader customer base is within very within all industries because the likelihood of you working with or having interaction with someone who doesn't share the same cultural identity as you is going to be significantly higher the more our economies become globalized. And then in turn, you know, what I always share with schools is that you would want students and you should, you know, if you want to talk about courageous leadership, you should want students to be exposed to learning opportunities, narratives uh, and interactions with not only those that share the same cultural identity as them, but those that don't, especially if you're looking at. Uh, for example, a college and university going culture, because ultimately, what is the likelihood that a student is going to have interactions with uh, or have a classmate who doesn't share the same cultural identity as them? And so for me, if you, as I shared earlier, if you rewind back to that particular class, you know, the fact that every student knew that when you walk in the doors of this classroom, you are going to be affirmed as to who you are, your language, your religion, your cultural identity, 
then that means that you can be your whole self in that learning environment, which means that everyone else in that learning environment is going to benefit because you are you're being your whole self, you're contributing to which all of us are learning from, which advances group learning. I mean, it's precisely why I must, I, I feel so strongly about not even just diversity, equity, and inclusion, but you know, anti-bias and anti-racist professional growth. We have to have that. We all have biases, but we have to be able to understand that some cases our biases can lead to uh, restricting access or restricting of, uh, accessibility of each other and it's and of course in education of elements of the curriculum now in terms of when you work with school on the anti-bias stuff like how do you start from the point of view of somehow trying to identify what people's biases are like even if they're subconscious like is that kind of the starting point is let's look at what people are actually are your biases and then we can work out how to kind of get rid of those kind of things right well so you can't really get rid of them um, because it's a, it's a natural byproduct of the way our brains work. Um, you know, the, the neuroscience behind bias is that our brains generally gravitate towards familiarity and um, ease of understanding of things. And so what happens is when we act upon those, it's called, um, and I don't remember the exact technical term, but it's social cognitive preference, which is implicit bias. So yeah. those are the things like, uh, for example, using our travel uh, stories as an example. Those are the reasons why, you know, tourists, let's say from the United States will go to a country and demand that English is spoken, only use English interpreters, only go to areas where they know English is going to be spoken. That's their implicit sure. bias working because English is what they're most familiar with. And they don't want the discomfort of going to areas where they may not understand the language. Um, yep. Full disclosure, I'm the exact opposite uh, for me because I know that there's growth that occurs in discomfort. Now, yeah. to answer your question, the, the first big step to do that that I do with schools is there's two, there's three big areas with that. One is an examination of the organizational culture. So what is the culture of the school or the school system uh, that is prevalent, that is most prevalent? And part of that is through, um, I would say, data acquisition. And that data is pretty much only um, uh, qualitative data because the numbers numbers can be manipulated. Yeah. Then the next step in doing that is um, essentially what I call holding a mirror up to yourself. And you have to get a deeper understanding um, as to who you are as an individual, what your perspectives and views are on your environment, uh, what environments you choose to be in, how do those potentially uh, perpetuate your implicit biases, and then really do a self-examination on who you surround yourself with and what what things like what media you consume yeah. uh, and things like that. And ultimately, those what what happens is if educators don't do that, then those shape not only the curriculum that you select, but how you teach that curriculum. And then here's the big one, how you view your students. Got it. We talked a bit before about, I think, you know, you've said that there, there is a problem with some international schools. Obviously there's a spectrum. Some international schools are doing a lot with diversity and having more people of color. Some, some haven't. Do you, do you think, do you think it's an issue that maybe in the recruitment process, many international schools are not, are not looking or somehow trying to recruit enough, enough kind of non-white teachers and staff? I do. Um, I think there's two things. There's the awareness of it. So for yeah. example, amongst my let's say very large circle of friends. And I think I shared, I might've shared this with you in a previous conversation. I didn't even know about the international schools, you know, yeah. when I was through getting my teacher 
certification. We were saying, I didn't even know about international schools till my 30s because I would have gone and worked for one straight away. I'm like, this is amazing. You can travel around the world. And like, I didn't even know they existed, you know? Back then, back then, I would have, I would have, I would have jumped at the chance to, yeah. uh, you know, begin teaching at a school outside of the US. I had the, I, I had already traveled to Europe and South America at that point. And I knew how much I love travel and just experiencing different cultures, different environments and things like that. Think about how amazing that would have been for me to have an opportunity to go teach at a school. I mean, in places you and I've been in Manila, in Bangkok, I mean, that would have been an amazing experience. So I think for international schools, yeah, it's, it's, it's twofold. It's, it's, it's having the awareness that the schools exist and then also yeah. intentionally recruiting um, but but I do want to say that there's an asterisk with the recruitment, there, and there's two components to that. Uh, one is recruitment and retention. Okay, yeah. so and and I understand that 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 teachers are under uh, you know definitive contracts, and sometimes heads of school changes and things like that. But you know you want to be able to recruit and say, okay, if we sign you to a two-year contract, that you will be comfortable with and contribute to the school environment, in, in, including obviously doing your job for that full two years. Uh, and yeah. then ultimately the other thing that I would share for your audience is that the recruitment should not be an individual, should be a group, because you don't want to, like you wouldn't want to recruit one of me to work at your school to where now I'm the only one, because there, there's a whole set of anxiety and trauma that comes with being the only one. And unfortunately I know that all too well, because that was my entire career in the Los Angeles Unified School District. Yeah. So you want to be able to recruit a team, if you will, of teachers of color to say, look, you know, we are looking at hiring in the following subject matter areas. We're recruiting you, this person, this person, this person. And we'd love for all of you to come and work at our school and be a part of our school community and our school family for at least the next couple of years. Yeah. And That's it would great. really, well, I, I do want to add just real quick, sure. it would really, it would really, not only would it diversify the, the faculty at the school, but, you know, here in the United States, the United States Department of Education has released data on research. And I can send you a link if you want to add it to the show notes yeah, on the impact that having, uh, in this case, the data I have is the impact of having a black male teacher in the classroom has on all students, not just black male students, all students. And a lot of things they have in there are, you know, theory support blank. My whole thing is those, those are not only just theories, those are hundred percent true because those are the experiences that I had in the classroom as a teacher. Sure. Now, Ken, when, you, when you've gone to work with schools, how do you typically do it? I mean, obviously you work in a lot of different ways of schools. Do you quite often go in uh, like in a, in a kind of fact finding, do like a workshop, meet some senior leaders, or, or is it usually kind of an ongoing process or, or, or does it vary a lot depending on, on the project? Yeah, that's a great question. So it varies, but I will say it depends on what the needs are. So for example, what you and I are talking about right now, that has to be an ongoing process. That is not a one day workshop. That is not a checkbox. Yep. It is something that requires a really detailed examination on what the vision of school leadership is, how it's aligned with being more uh, diversified, how it's aligned with supporting the teachers and taking yep. the teachers through a very detailed and methodical process that, you know, many of the school districts that I work with here in the United States and quite frankly, some of the um, the schools that um, I was, uh, I'm in the process of potentially working with there in South Africa, yep. uh, it, it, it's a year or two. Yeah. 
I know with international schools that creates a challenge that you have the turnover and the attrition rate of teachers on the campus. But ultimately, if you establish it in the mission of the school, you establish it as a part of the school culture, then theoretically, the culture is what endures the people. Uh, the people they get hired become a part of the school culture. They don't dictate what the school culture is. Got it. Got it. And is there any, any other areas you work with schools? I've I've also kind of led the discussion, but is there any other things you, you know, the areas specifically related to this whole topic that you kind of work with schools about? Well, of course, you know, you and I, our common denominator is the use of technology. And so the other area, yes, that I do work this work in is, um, and it's a term that I use called equity which is the intersectionality of technology and equity. Yeah, and that's, that's a really that's, interesting topic. Can, can you explain what does that mean? And, and, and yeah, how well, can you, you know, in my, it, it is, a, is a consistently evolving definition, but ultimately equity is merging, merging the use of educational technologies to, to uh, provide students with culturally responsive and culturally relevant learning experiences that support the development of essential skills. But I'm adding to that definition that that use of technology can also help dismantle areas of bias and areas of uh, racism that, you know, ultimately racism is any anything that um, that identifies or perpetuates a racial hierarchy. So we can even dismantle that through our use of technology uh, with things like exposing students to narratives that aren't aligned with the dominant culture. Sure. And, and, you know, and my identity is the majority minority. So, you know, when you, when you really, really scrutinize the curriculum and you look at the things like what books are being assigned that the students are reading, what, um, what historical narratives are the students being exposed to, think about how technology gives you access and opportunity to stories, narratives, and even people. And when I say people, I'm talking about people across all subject matter areas that may not necessarily be in the standardized curriculum. So that's where the techity piece comes in is that I I really strongly, strongly believe, and I know you believe in tech as well, that tech is one of the most effective and most needed mechanisms for uh, broadening our understanding and our scope, uh, our, our scope of learning experiences. Definitely. That's fascinating. Now you, before you mentioned curriculum then, and before we talked, you said this phrase like, colonized curriculum about yeah. some curriculums are kind of more focused. Can you explain what, what that kind of means and, and, and what, what the issue is with, with curriculum and, and how they may be more focused on one ethnic group? Yeah. So, so essentially a, a colonized curriculum is a, uh, a white male Eurocentric curriculum. And so if you think in terms of history, you know, what, if you were to look at the totality of the historical curriculum, what, lens is it told through what narratives are predominantly included who's predominantly glorified you know there's the whole idea around you know to me a a true historical analysis and i remember i had this actually in my tedx talk is you want to teach students to think like a historian not teach them history well if you think like a historian when you look at significant events in history you don't look at them through the lens of one particular narrative you do an analysis from all all sides of that same event so, I, you know, I, you know, if you think in terms of like exploration, so exploration on one side is glorified through the Eurocentric lens. Yep. We got on our boats, we explored, we brought back, we, we engaged in trade, we brought back spices, we brought back, uh, you know, natural resources, we did all these types of things. That's generally the way the story is told. However, 
if you truly, truly want to decolonize a curriculum, you don't limit it to that particular narrative. You say, okay, well, here's one perspective of this. What's the perspective of the indigenous peoples where these explorers went? Yep. What happened to them? Why do we not know their stories? How can we use, you know, in this case, technology to learn their stories? And, uh, and what, what, if you were to rewrite that history lesson, if you will, what would the story, what would the story look like as told from, uh, you know, indigenous perspective? Yeah. Sure. Uh, and that's one of many examples, you know, it, it's, it ultimately it's, it's, it's a looking at the curriculum and saying, are we providing students with the, the, a broader understanding everything? And, and by the way, when I, when I use that term, the uh, colonized curriculum, it apply, I'm using history as one example, but I will tell you it applies in math. You know, when I go into a math class and I've seen this in several international schools, if I look on the walls and I see the posters of, you know, significant mathematicians in history, I, I rarely see posters of women. I rarely see posters, you know, mathematicians that are people of color, you know, even something like the concept of zero that was that was developed in India. Yeah, but I don't I, I rarely see that. And so, you know, ultimately, the whole idea around that is how beneficial is it to the educator and the students if they're not being provided a learning experience that tells all the stories sure fantastic ken well look we said we chat for half an hour we're getting pretty much up to half an hour um first thing i want to say ken like i could tell i could talk to you all, all day like first of all if any school is interested in working with ken an international school i'll put a google form up you can fill it in and get in touch with ken directly like i can say personally ken's one of the best keynote speakers i've i've ever seen that's you know I've, you. I've never worked with ken on this kind of equity stuff it's all been google but in terms of keynote and how he wraps everything together uh, definitely is is someone you should have at your school um, where can people find you online? I'll put links to your Twitter and LinkedIn and stuff on, on the show notes. Well, I appreciate that. And I, 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 I want to say, one, people can find me at uh, my website, which is kennethshelton.net yeah. as well. And yes, I am on social media. I use Twitter. I use LinkedIn. I use Instagram. I use all of them quite heavily. I love using social media to stay connected. And I, I really appreciate you having me on here. And, uh, you know, for your audience, I, I, I do want to be, I want to share one tidbit for your audience is that, you know, for those of you listening, you know, aligned with what I, what Dan has asked me and what we've shared, you know, as Dan shared early on, he and I have been friends for uh, over 10 years. And you think in terms of where Dan is from, which I've had the privilege of spending time with him, where he's from. Middle and of where where I, in Yorkshire, definitely. Yeah, very, exactly. Mono, very you know, monocultural area. <laughs> but, but here's the thing though, if you think in terms of what we just discussed in this uh, episode, look at how much you and I have been able to benefit from learning from and spending time with each other. I mean, we've broken bread in many countries. And I mean, the last time you and I went to, uh, remember we went to Dishoom there in London and yeah. we hung out for like th almost three hours. Uh, yeah, I mean, I so went to Brick Lane, so, got a, got a curry and, uh, right. yep. Yep. So I, I think for your, you know, for the audience, I think for you all, it's, it's, it's an understanding of Dan and I are, have been friends for over 10 years, and it's because he and I, you know, education and more specifically educational technology brought us together. But it was our, our understanding of each other, our, our affirmation of each other, that is the reason why our friendship has lasted and will continue to last well beyond what's been more than 10 years. And he and I both have benefited from spending time with each other. And then here's a big one the schools that he and I have had the opportunity to work together in have benefited because they've had both of us supporting teachers, 
to support students in having meaningful learning experiences. Ken, well, thanks very much. Very, very kind words. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for spending time today. Thank you.